a system that goes out of its way to make exceptions for people who have good tolerance to alcohol doesn't make sense. That, that's just now that's my opinion, and other people can disagree. But I, I would go out of my way to make exceptions for making sure that people don't get killed. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, my co-host, Attorney J. Craig Williams uh, is in a Southern California courtroom today, so uh, I will be flying solo in today's show. We're going to be talking about drunk driving laws today, but uh, before we do that, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Clio, the uh, web-based practice management solution, which you can find at goclio.com. Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. You can find out more about them at abovealllegal.com. And Firm Manager, uh, the web-based, uh, the cloud-based practice management solution from LexisNexis, available at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Well, with the holiday season uh, in high gear and, and holiday parties to suit, uh, we thought it would be appropriate to take a look at uh, drunk driving laws in this country uh, and uh, how, how are they doing? Are, are they working? Uh, what's happening with them? Um, the uh, According to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, there were nearly, nearly 11,000 people killed in drunk driving-related crashes in 2009. An estimated 2 million drivers have three or more prior drunk driving offenses. Uh, on average, someone is killed by a drunk driver every 40 minutes in America. Uh, these are pretty sobering statistics, uh, and uh, I saw uh, another one from the uh, Center for Disease Control that suggested there are at least 110 million instances of drunk driving in this country every year. Uh, so this is a, a major issue uh, for our country and for our, our legal system to deal with. Uh, we're going to talk about that with, with two experts who are joining us today. Uh, first of all, I'd like to... Uh, Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Baron Lerner. Uh, Dr. Lerner is from Columbia University, and uh, he is the uh, author of the uh, recently published book, One for the Road, Drunk Driving Since 1900, uh, A Cultural History of Drunk Driving in the United States. Uh, welcome, Dr. Lerner. Thank you. Uh, and uh, also joining us today uh, is uh, George Stein. George is, is a... DUI defense lawyer in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he's the author of a book uh, entitled Georgia DUI Law, published by Lexis. He's a founding member and regent of the National College for DUI Defense and teaches at their cutting-edge seminars. Uh, he's done hundreds of, of jury trials in these cases, uh, in defense of these cases. So we'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, George Stein. Thanks. Pleased to be here. Well, thanks for both of you for being with us today. And Dr. Lerner, I, I, I 
want to t- start with you. Uh, you. You've just recently published this book uh, looking at uh, at drunk driving since 1900. I'm curious, at what point did this become an issue for the legal system? Uh, it became an issue for the legal system very early on, uh, as early as the beginning of the 20th century when cars began to appear on American roads. Some early laws were passed that specifically said uh, it was a crime to drive in an, in an intoxicated state. And different cities and different states passed different laws at different times, um, which is one of the challenges. But it was recognized very early on that there was a problem with people getting behind the wheel after they had drunk alcohol. You look at uh, kind of the evolution of this. At, at what point uh, did we start having drunk driving laws specifically addressing this issue? Um, the, the earliest laws were, again, early 20th century. But the, the, what happened really uh, to accelerate things was in the 1930s. And that was the first time that people could use roadside testing similar to today, early versions of it, where a driver could breathe into a device and based on their breath alcohol, get an estimate of what the blood alcohol was. So once that equipment was available, states routinely in this country began passing various laws saying that a particular blood alcohol level was equal to a drunk driving offense. And different states had different levels and things like that. But that's really when things accelerated, when we were able, from a more scientific basis, to measure actual alcohol in the blood. And I want to bring George in just a moment, but I wanted to ask you about that. We, we've come to accept this level of, of 0.08 as the standard. I think the federal government has pretty much driven this as, as the standard across the states. Uh, you write that early on the standard was much higher. Yes, it was. Uh, it was basically 0.15 uh, for decades in this country, and that of, of the things I discovered during my research, that was probably the most surprising. Um, you know, if if to get up to 0.15, you have to work really, really hard at it. You are not uh, having a social evening out, having a couple drinks and dinner. You are pouring down the alcohol into your mouth and probably trying not to eat to get your level higher so you're having a better time. And for years and years, that was the formal legal limit that definitely would get someone arrested for drunk driving. Levels below, you had to, um, it depended on what people were able to do in roadside testing and things like that. But the level was really twice as high as it is today. And you, you raised some questions even about 0.08. You were, I heard you interviewed an NPR recently where you, you told about an experiment uh, that you did uh, on yourself uh, with that. Can you just tell us about that quickly? Yeah, I, I, uh, I bought myself a breathalyzer, which is very easy to do over Amazon. And I started drinking and I plopped my wife down in the chair and made her observe me and measure my limits. And the, the main thing I found was that to get myself up to 0.08, which is the current legal limit, I had to have five drinks on an empty stomach, um, which is really striking. Um, I think most people don't really understand, again, that it takes a lot of work to get that inebriated. And, and the notion really of anybody feeling they have the right to get behind the wheel anywhere near having drunk that much is pretty astounding. But as you said at the beginning of the show, millions of people do it every year. 
Well, uh, George Stein, I want to bring you into the conversation, uh, and I wonder what what your perspective is on this this standard, uh, I guess, in terms of the, the blood alcohol level. Uh, how accurate uh, are these tests, and how accurate a reflection are they of somebody's ability to drive? Well, uh, you know, as the doctor probably knows, uh, there is uh, this issue called tolerance, and each individual human being has a different level of tolerance to alcohol so that, you know, if you're a lightweight like me, uh, I can tell you that if I have just one glass of wine, I feel it. Uh, And so, you know, that's something that might come into effect as far as uh, gauging somebody's ability to drive. However, there are those out there that can have three or four, maybe even five drinks, uh, and probably not feel too affected by it. Of course, it's linked to the size of the person and their weight. Uh, there may be some age factors as well, but uh, if the doc- I think the doctor is probably aware of the, the Widmark's formula, which speaks to you know uh, size and weight and how many ounces of alcohol you've consumed. Uh, and that's normally how they try to figure out what a proposed BAC is uh, when they don't have an actual breath or blood test to to determine that. Uh, You know, when you look at the European standard, a lot of those countries uh, have a much lower legal limit, usually a a .05, or I think Sweden or Switzerland might even be a .02. So it's it's getting closer to zero tolerance, uh, but it does depend on the person, and it depends on their size, and it depends on their tolerance. I think the 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 problem, at least in the United States, where people run into problems are they don't recognize, as the, for let's say, for instance, the average adult male, from the time you consume the alcohol and it's sitting in your belly, it takes about 75 to 90 minutes to get to your highest BAC. And so quite often the, the, the mistake people make is, is they might have a couple drinks over 20 or 30 minutes and say to themselves, you know, I feel just fine. Then they get into the car, start it up and start driving down the highway to go home. And as they're driving home, their BAC is rising. And that, I think, is a big problem. Well, is is the law right to, to tolerate any level of drinking? I mean, doctor, let me let me ask you, I mean, should, should we even uh, allow drinking and driving at all uh, in a perfect world, or or, uh, or is this something we need to accept uh, as, as a matter in the courts? Yeah, the, you know, this is this is, becomes almost a philosophical question. Um, you know, I, I certainly would, uh, you know, would, would argue that a system that goes out of its way to make exceptions for people who have good tolerance to alcohol doesn't make sense. That, that's just, now that's my opinion and other people can disagree, but I, I would go out of my way to make exceptions for making sure that people don't get killed. So, so to me, uh, and I, and, you know, Mr. Stein's totally right about the, uh, you know, about tolerance, but, you know, I would say from my perspective, it makes more sense to say, you know what, you have good tolerance and you could actually drive safely with four drinks, but as a public health measure and to save lives from people who couldn't drive as well as you, we're going to put in very restrictive rules and and maybe interfere a little bit with your ability to drink 
uh, and have a social life. So it depends on where one personally wants to draw the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I, I'd like to chime in and just say that. Sure, go ahead. Um, uh, oddly enough, Doctor, I just ordered your books because I saw and learned about them online and uh, was fascinated by the idea of the history of DUI in America. But but I, I do have one observation I would like to make, and that is, um, of course, you know what you're saying is a noble cause, and it, of course we want to save lives, and we we don't want to have carnage on the highways too. But I find that the the mad statistics and, and some of the quotes about, uh, let's say, for instance, 2011, uh, you know, 11,000 people were killed. That um, they they've made it kind of a moving target statistically because. Um, it's one thing to say X amount of people have been killed because of inebriation or real intoxication, but it's a, it's a very different thing to say, let's pump up those figures and use as the term, the, the basis that we're looking for, alcohol-related. And, and that that I do have a problem with because when you merely say alcohol-related, it quite often doesn't even speak to somebody who's impaired at all. Sometimes it speaks to somebody who might have had a few sips of a beer, or um, you know, uh, somebody mentioned to me, and I'm not sure if it's accurate that that statistic often even shows uh, or is included if there's alcohol in the car. Um, so uh, I, I question those numbers. The the, the concept is a noble one, but you know, I, I say when you're trying to teach the public and sway the opinions and the habits that people have out there, that if we have a real statistic, that certainly would be helpful. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with that statement, and, and I talk about it in the book a lot. And I, unfortunately, I, I was no better able than anyone else to, to get any, quote, real figures. But um, it, it's absolutely true that what is a cause of a car crash and a fatality is so difficult to determine. Um, you know, drowsy driving, drug driving, road rage, there's so many different things that can contribute. So it it is hard, I think, to see a number and say that that's a real number. You know, to me, that that plays almost into the argument that, you know, all of these things that I just mentioned should be avoided at all costs, right? If you had a bad night of sleep, and you're at risk of drowsy driving, you shouldn't have one drop of alcohol uh, when you're about to drive uh, because that's going to raise the risk of a crash. So, you know, while I don't disagree with you, maybe because the statistics are so hard to understand, to me at least, that would make me want to be more cautious, not less cautious. I have to wonder uh, a lot about the laws uh, that address this issue. I, I, I'm I'm in Massachusetts where there, there's been a, a lot of controversy over the last month, uh, only because the the Boston Globe here did a a big expose uh, where they went in and looked at the numbers of uh, drunk driving uh, arrests and prosecutions and and uh, and trials and 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 acquittals and, and concluded that cases that went to a, a bench trial before a judge uh, as opposed to a jury trial uh, were were. Uh, resulted in acquittals in, in something phenomenal like 90% of the cases. Uh, 
that uh, judges were were far more likely to uh, let let uh, let off a defendant. Now in Massachusetts, we have a unique situation where uh, I, I think it's unique. Only a few states allow you to turn down a breathalyzer, decline a breathalyzer, and, and the fact that you've declined that uh, cannot be used in evidence against you. So we end up having uh, cases based on uh, the uh, field sobriety tests and, and observational details. Uh, but but my point is that th- this this series of articles has issued uh, has resulted in a call by the legislature to uh, reform our drunk driving laws in Massachusetts, and I, I think they were last reformed about five years ago when there was another uh, issue in the papers, and the legislature decided to tackle it. And I, I guess what I'm wondering is how how good a job our our state legislatures are doing at addressing this issue uh with the laws are are they are they being purely reactive uh or are they uh being thoughtful and considered in in the laws that they're putting on the books here you know it's it seems to me that it's a a politician's one of their favorite subjects is to talk about DUIs and how they're going to get tough on DUIs and they're not going to permit it and they're going to Make the laws uh, more and more strict, and so that's that's the direction. Especially with the influence of MAD over the, the years, and especially the latter '80s, uh, it seems like it's going in that direction. But um, and I don't know if you agree or not, Doctor. But it, it seems you know modernly we're kind of since we've reached the .08 standard that things just have kind of, uh, you know, that's been the line in the sand, and it really hasn't budged much from there. Of course, a legislature can impose uh, jail time on a first DUI, but typically it's only a couple days, and they can impose license suspensions uh, that are associated to the the DUIs when you're convicted. Um, But as far as having any real major movement, it's it's kind of been stuck there, and it's, it's stalled out. Uh, and and it and it may stay there because I, I think there's an issue as to what the public uh, or even the legislators at large uh, feel are are are, are going to be fair and you know God knows if there's some influence in there too when it comes to maybe uh, the beer and wine and liquor industry. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I I agree completely. One of the themes that I talk about in the book is how you try to keep a movement going after many years, and if you you know mad was. When it first started in 1980 through the late 1980s, was was in the newspapers all the time. This was a new issue that people hadn't talked about. There was an enormous amount of excitement. We need to clamp down on this. And and then, like many other organizations now, they have to compete with other issues to gain the public's attention, to get the time of police officers, of public health officials to to try to address it. So I, I do think that's true. Um, it's interesting. I gave a talk yesterday to the DA's office in Manhattan, and they uh, had gone through a period of apparently being pretty lax on drunk driving. And in the last two years, they've ramped up their conviction rate, I think, by something like 90 percent, they told me. And it was interesting. I was glad to hear it. But I also did think to myself, gee, it would be nice to have a, a system where these things were consistent and we said, you know, this is bad and, and, and requires punishment, and this isn't so bad. But we seem to sway back and forth based on the political wins. So I, I think that's true. But it's, as you said, it's probably a reality in this country. Well, stay with us. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a few more in a few moments to talk more about uh, drunk driving laws in the United States.
Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. You've heard of Firm Manager. You've seen ads for Firm Manager. Now you can try Firm Manager free for 30 days at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Firm Manager is the web-based matter management application from LexisNexis that lets you run your practice anywhere, anytime, including your desktop, laptop, mobile phone, or iPad. Take the free 30-day trial today at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN and spend less time focusing on clerical work and more time on practicing law. This is Kay Kenny at Legal Talk Network, and I'm talking with attorney Mimi Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. Mimi, how is Above All Legal different from the other online legal job boards? Well, we believe that the reason Above All Legal stands out among the rest is based on a few factors. First, we're attorney-owned and operated. We're dedicated strictly to the legal profession, and we are an extremely cost-effective way for employers to market their firm. Also, we're free for the job seeker, and we're very user-friendly. Finally, our many years of legal staffing experience have enabled us to create a job board that best showcases our job seekers and puts the finest legal community and organizations together. We've been talking to attorney Mimi Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal. Check it out at AboveAllLegal.com. That's AboveAllLegal.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is off in a trial today. Uh, we are joined by attorney George Stein, a DUI defense lawyer from Atlanta, Georgia. 
and by Dr. Baron Lerner of Columbia University, author of the uh, recently published book, One for the Road, Drunk Driving Since 1900. Uh, George, I, I uh, wanted to ask you uh, about uh, field sobriety testing uh, and uh, your impression of how uh, effective that is as a tool for assessing uh, uh, somebody's uh, state of sobriety. Well, you know, I'd like to think... Bob, that when you think of field sobriety testing, that they should be fair and it should be an even playing field, so to speak, when they're administered, usually out there on the streets. Um, and, of course, initially, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, uh, often shortened um, and called NHTSA, um, started their studies in the late 70s um, by Dr. Marcelina Burns, uh, who actually, I think, was a sociologist. Uh, and they they came up with a battery after several studies of three acceptable field tests, namely the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, which is a test on the eyes that they give uh, uh, where they're looking to see if there's nystagmus mostly at 45 degrees or prior to 45 degrees. Uh, a one-leg stand where the person balances is on one leg for about 30 seconds. It's a time test. And lastly, uh, the walk and turn evaluation, which is where you walk out nine steps, heel to toe, touching, kind of clicking heel to toe with your arms to the side, and then turn around and then come back nine steps. So those are the three field tests. Um, And I suppose they do have some merits, but what I find is is the way they're administered, uh, I I quite often say in interviews that uh, they're designed for failure because if you stop and think about it, especially those balancing tests, um, you know w- when you when you take into consideration obvious factors like the fact that the police ask you instead of allowing you to raise your arms to put your arms by your side, uh, that, you know that in my mind would make somebody more likely to sway and lose their balance. Uh, couple that with the fact that let's say when you're doing a balancing feat, normally people look out. Uh, and some of us call it a point of reference, some of us call it a horizon, just as a highly trained gymnast would on a balancing beam. They, they always raise their arms, they always look straight out so they have a horizon, uh, so they have a sense of balance so they can get a high score and hopefully win a medal. But when these officers administer these tests out on the street, uh, and you're balancing and you're holding your leg up or walking the straight line, if you'll notice, they always ask you or direct you to look at your feet, therefore taking away your point of reference, and to keep your arms to the side. And this so dramatically, in my mind, increases the chance of you not performing well on them that uh, I just think they're not really a, a true test of somebody's ability to drive, especially if you have an older citizen or an overweight citizen. Uh, we, we talked about the uh the fact that the this the, the point oh eight uh, test has has remained steady for some time now, but one area that where the uh, legislatures have been uh, perhaps getting tougher on uh, drunk driving is or in the penalties imposed for repeat offenders. Uh, in one area where they're uh, perhaps uh, I don't know if I want to call it experimenting a little bit, or, or with the devices such as ignition interlocks, uh, where uh, somebody gets into a car and can't start the car until they breathe into a tube. Uh, and, and Dr. Lerner, I, I know that you're, you've, you're in favor of this kind of uh, technology. Uh, 
can, can you talk a little bit about, do you think it should be expanded beyond uh, repeat offenders? I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, ignition interlocks. Um, and one of the interesting things, of course, in this country, because we have so many different states and state laws, is that the ways that different states choose to use them is different. Some states rarely use them. Uh, other states use them, for example, for repeat offenders. If you have multiple DUIs or at very high blood alcohol levels, and about I think about 12 states now require them if you're convicted of one uh, DUI. Um, I, I like the latter a lot um, because I, I think it can serve as a deterrent, and the data shows that people uh, are less likely to drive drunk by two-thirds uh, more if they have an ignition interlock. And so to me, if you've gone out, you've been caught driving drunk, and as one of the stipulations of your going free, you say, okay, I'm never going to do this again, then you should be happy to put an ignition interlock on your car. You should have no objection to that, nor on any sort of libertarian basis. Um, you know, I can see people making a stink if they've never had a DWI before, but to me, one DWI, and I'm saying I've made a big mistake and I'm never going to do it again, I'd be more than happy to see an ignition interlock on my car. So I would love for all 50 states to adopt that standard. Would you see the day coming when all of our cars would be smart enough to know when we're too drunk to drive them? Um, from what I understand, that technology is probably going to be available within you know five to ten years. You know, I think that there are going to be very strong libertarian objections that are important to take note of. Um, you know that that you know in this country we have a you know we're innocent until proven guilty. We have a strong civil liberties bent perhaps more so than other countries and you know is it is it reasonable to put these devices in everyone's car and i i don't think that sort of thing is is likely to happen i think there's going to continue to be a, a graded approach uh but it, it's exciting if if the technologies are good enough and that's obviously very important uh if they're good enough that they're there as options to try to get people off the roads if they shouldn't be driving uh, George Stein, what's what's your reaction as a defense lawyer to these? I mean, I, I would think for a lot of people who've been convicted, uh, uh, perhaps an interne ignition interlock would be a, a, a less uh, onerous uh, penalty than, than a loss of a license. Well, that's true. Um, and I think um, the the idea of the ignition interlock device is, uh, is you know, I guess a sound concept as far as what the goal is, is and, and that's to prevent somebody who's been convicted of DUI from driving drunk again. But I, th I think the brutal reality of it is, is it may be, not be as effective as one thinks. You know, uh, for instance, if there's a passenger in the car and the passenger blows in the machine. I, I, there's no real way to, on many of those machines, to identify who's blowing into it or whose breath it is. Um, and or I, you know, I, I've heard of lots of people that own two or three cars, and if they're convicted of DUI, they put the ignition interlock device in one car, but uh, they're still at liberty to drive the other cars around, <laughs> and it doesn't have it in there. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, if it partially saves lives and prevents multiple offenders from continuing uh, the nasty habit of being impaired and driving, then uh, you know, then 
it's a good thing. But I think ultimately what you'll find is is the technology over the next five to ten years will improve. Um, I, I've heard of technology such as um, you know, devices built into the steering wheel so that uh, when you touch it by your hand, it measures, uh, analyzes the sweat gland on your hands and can come up with a BAC and might just shut the car off. Um, there's also, I think, some infrared or laser technology that's being used now uh, and developed for uh, assisting those who are diabetic to measure their sugar instantly without piercing their skin. And um, I, I, it's my understanding that might go into the alcohol measurement uh, genre. And so, uh, you know, I, I think probably we might be about 10 years out from uh, a, a solution to this that's uh, going to make it a, a whole new world out there. Thanks. We're, we're getting short on time, uh, and I want to give each of you an opportunity to give your, your closing thoughts on this topic. But I wonder if, if, if in doing that, you might, you might talk a little bit about uh, what, what you see as, as the most effective, uh, I don't know if solution is the word, but the most effective way to address this issue, uh, whether as a, as a public health issue, whether as a legal issue uh, going forward. What, what should our country be doing that we're not doing now to, to address this issue? Uh, Baron Lerner? Well, you know, what I would say that was something we haven't talked about, and if you if you talk to people at the CDC and, and other agencies, everybody talks about uh, drug driving and, and, and uh, now distracted driving and, and drunk driving, that what people really should think about is, is traffic safety more broadly. Um, and, you know, how can we imbue in the public the notion that driving is a privilege and not a right, and that when you get on the road, you should be as alert and capable as you can be, and anything short of that is a disservice to your fellow citizens. So, you know, I think that hopefully as we go on, and and Mr. Stein certainly right that the technology is exciting, you know, we should tr- strive as a society, and, and many European countries have done this better than us, to emphasize traffic safety more broadly. And if we do that, I think we're going to save tens of thousands of lives a year. It's really something that's potentially very productive. Thanks. And George Stein, uh, your your closing thoughts on this? Well, uh, I'm big on education. I think if you start at a young age and you have statistics that are sound and and you're genuine about the education and not just uh, using fear tactics uh, and things that you know people figure out later aren't exactly true or not true for them, then, then you can gain an awful lot. Of course, America's at a disadvantage simply because of uh, the, the vast size of our continent and our country. Uh, and so we have you know vast suburbs and super highways, and, and it's very different than the European system where if you want to go to the local pub, that's probably two blocks away or a five-minute train ride away. Um, so I, I think it's easier for those folks. But we're really going to have to, I think, rely on education and, and uh, you know, not just as to the DUIs, uh, Bob, but as you mentioned earlier, as to the texting and driving, which is, you know, really a bad thing, too. Um, and as Dr. Lerner mentioned, too, it's it's got to be a full package sort of uh, awareness and education that includes, you know, drowsiness, being tired, uh, the idea of not uh, taking in drugs or smoking marijuana, not drive, not not drinking excessively, and and just I, I think the smarter we get, uh, 
the more that uh, we'll be able to save lives uh, and uh, get this thing going in a good direction. But, of course, you know, there's the legal aspects to it also, and and everybody's right when we talk about the the, the idea that um, people aren't presumed to be guilty, they're presumed to be innocent, and we do have certain uh, civil rights and and. I understand it is a privilege to drive, but you know the the police can't be overbearing, even if you are driving, and so it's not an easy formula. It's a complicated formula, but at the end of the day, I think education and awareness is the way to go. Well, thank you very much, Baron Lerner. Uh, your book, One for the Road: Drunk Driving Since 1900, I know is available uh, is available online at, at Amazon. Yeah, it's on Amazon and and all those places. So, uh, yep, it's up there. Yeah. And any other uh, any other information you'd like to give our listeners in terms of how they might follow up with you? Um, well, uh, th- that's probably the best way. I'm at Columbia University. I'm on the website. I always am interested in emails from people who have knowledge on the topic. Uh, my email is bhl5 at columbia.edu, so I'm always glad to talk to people. But, uh, you know, if they're interested enough to read the book and, and see how I try to balance the history with the modern controversies, that would be great, too. Okay, and, and George Stein, uh, I know your website is georgestein.com. Uh, uh, any other uh, vital information you'd like to give our listeners? Sure. Uh, you know, if anybody wants to chime in or tell me how they feel about it or has any questions on the topic, they can go to my blog, which is askgeorgestein.com. All right, well, thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciated your uh, insights on this topic and your uh, time uh, spent with us today. Uh, we would like to uh, remind our listeners, uh, of course, that you can find this and all of our shows uh, in the podcast library and iTunes and at the uh, LegalTalkNetwork.com. And that you can also now get CLE credit for select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to the LegalTalkNetwork.com, click on the West Legal Ed Center icon there to find out how to do that. Uh, we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great legal topic. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.